ministry, those of you that are new, this teaching ministry, Disciple Dojo, uh, we are at our one-year anniversary of being a nonprofit, and so the Roots Chris donates the space and the food, and I donate the teaching. So your tips don't go to me; they go to the people in the back that serve the food, um, and that's part of what Roots has arranged to set up. On my end, if you want to support this ministry, which is not just this Bible study, but we record it each week, video, podcast, uh, we do you know, online biblical library of teaching resources, all of which are free. We don't sell any of our resources. They're all free. They're all available streaming. We're putting out new material that I'm editing right now. And we also do a uh, anti-bullying and self-defense course every week for refugee, immigrant, and lower income kids up in near uptown. So all of that is under the umbrella of Disciple Dojo. And Disciple Dojo is entirely funded by donations now. Not where we want to be <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but God's blessing us and opening up some doors. So I'm saying that to say, if you like this Bible study or the idea of anything that we're doing, um, closed mouths don't get fed. So I got to take a minute and say, listen, we really would like for you to be a monthly Disciple Dojo donor. And we're setting it up right now on the website, discipledojo.org where there are belt levels for giving. So white belt givers, it's only $10 a month. All the way up to red belt givers, which is $1,000 a month. If any of you want to be one of those, let me know. But we're looking for people, just you know, $10 a month, $25 a month, whatever you think you can support. It keeps this study going, and it keeps the resources and the funding and the, just all of the expenses that come with running a nonprofit. So I really would like for you to pray and consider doing that. You do it right on the website. You do it with either a credit card or your bank's draft or how, whatever. You, I don't take any money. We have a finance director. I, I don't, as a nonprofit, I don't see who gives what, and we chose it that way, the board and I, on purpose. So I don't treat anybody who gives me $1,000 a month better than I treat somebody that gives me nothing. But I would like for you guys to, to give as you're able and as you th- feel God's leading you. Um, but do not do it at the expense of your local church. If you have a local church home, you tithe there. And then if you want to give offerings, which are above the tithe, we would love to receive those as well. So just keep that in mind. Um, and that's it for housekeeping stuff. Well, let's jump back in. We're All year we've been in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you are just coming in on this for the study for the first time, every week before now, all the way back to Genesis, is recorded and available on, my, on the Disciple Dojo website. So you just click on the link, train the spirit, click on that, and it opens up the podcast. You go there and subscribe. iTunes or SoundCloud if you're Apple or Android. And you have a library of access to the entire Torah so far, uh, starting all the way back. I think we started recording around Genesis 15. Uh, definitely Exodus uh, through now. And that brings us to Deuteronomy 13 this week. Now we're in the section of Deuteronomy where, <clears throat> for those who are joining us for the first time or have been away for a while, Deuteronomy is the renewal of the covenant God made with Israel when He brought him out of Egypt. He didn't just bring them out of Egypt and say, go do your thing. He brought them out of Egypt, formed them into His army, and His people camped around His little portable Mount Sinai, which is called the Tabernacle, and gave them instructions. This is how you're going to live as My people, and you're going to go into this land, and you're going to possess the land because you're possessing the land is My judgment on these people who are in the land right now 
not just because they're not Israelites, because we've seen God doesn't have ethnic favorites, but because they are rampantly idolatrous and wantonly evil. And we saw how last week their evils included all kinds of sins all the way up to child sacrifice. So that's the kind of evil God's judging. Not, oh, you pray to a different God. Oh, you you'd baptize differently. Oh, you believe in many gods rather than one. No, there's, there's all kinds of idolatry and, and none of it's salvific um, in and of itself. But the idolatry that brings on God's wrath is the idolatry that destroys literally innocent men, women, children, uh, rots societies, corrupts lands, raises itself up against God, uh, perverts all of the things that He intended us to have as good elements of creation, including food, including the weather, including crops, including flocks, including sex, including all of the things that are good that we want to corrupt in our desire to make idols. Uh, Human cultures are idol factories. It's what we do. We create idols because we don't want to worship the way God says or the God who is there, and we want a God that's more palpable to our tastes. And that's what people have been doing in all human history. And so in particular, these people in Canaan have taken that to a degree that other cultures around them at the time had not even descended. And so God had already said this is going to happen. He's known this. Nothing surprises him. He had told Israel's ancestor Abraham all the way back 400 years before this in Genesis 15 that when your offspring are ready to be delivered from their predicament in Egypt, these people who are in this land where you are now are going to be ripe for judgment. So God's sovereign purposes are working so that when it's time to announce judgment on this people, when He can stand their sin and their evil no longer, then that just happens to be the time when He's wanting to deliver and rescue His people. So His redemption for one is His judgment for the other and vice versa. And that foreshadows the ultimate day of the Lord that the prophets will talk about when God does come to right all the wrongs. Think about it. If God's going to right all the wrongs, if He's going to give people vindication, if people are crying out, save us from our enemies, you know, save us from our society, from this condition, from whatever we're going through, then that means stopping the people who are doing the things that are hurting the, what we're crying out against. So that means that the vindication for God's people will also be the judgment for those who are oppressing and opposing God's people, God's covenant people. That's super important. In the Old Testament, His covenant people were the people who are living under this thing we have as Torah. In the New Covenant, after the arrival of Jesus and Messiah, the whole focus expands. It doesn't change. It doesn't get replaced It expands and includes everybody everywhere who truly calls upon the name of the Lord and enters into covenant with God through His covenant mediator, Messiah Jesus. And so that's where we now find ourselves on this side of the cross. But back then, we're still where Israel's in its infancy. And their covenant is very much a literal covenant. Well, what's a covenant? A covenant is a contract. But it's more than a contract. It's a contract that has spiritual, ethical, and legal ramifications. The one that we're all familiar with, most of us, is marriage. There's a reason that most people, especially Christians or Jews or devout Muslims or Hindus or others, don't just go to the courthouse and sign a marriage certificate. There's a reason that they have a ceremony. It's not just to celebrate and get drunk, right? It's not just to party and do the chicken dance or whatever people do. No, it is to come together and to bind themselves to one another voluntarily 
and do so publicly, so it has public implications, legal implications, and before God or their worshiping community. So it has spiritual implications. That's a covenant. Israel has entered into, at Mount Sinai, a covenant. The prophets describe Israel's, the events of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The prophets describe it. God describes it through the prophets as Him marrying Israel. That was their wedding ceremony, was Mount Sinai. And so that first generation immediately broke the covenant. They rebelled. And they continued to rebel. That's what we saw, those of you that were here last year when we were going through the book of Numbers, is they rebelled over and over and until finally that generation that God brought out of Egypt and married them symbolically, He said, okay, I'm done. And you're done. You forfeit. All the rights of, of what it means to be my bride. All the rights of being my people, you forfeited. And that generation dies in the wilderness. But he says, however, I keep my promises and my purposes do come to pass. So, you as a people are not cut off. But you as the generation who's guilty are. And that's the dynamic God operates with. He'll never, he'll never cast His people as a whole away. There will always be a remnant. There will always, his plans will come true. But that doesn't mean that any one of us can presume that we're part of those plans if we're not walking in obedience to His covenant, living as His people. And that's the same Old and New Testament because the New Testament authors will pick up on Israel's story in the wilderness and they will tell their audience in the New Covenant they are an example for us to not fall away, to not throw away, to shipwreck our salvation as, the author, as Paul will say or the author of Hebrews um, over and over and over you'll see these warnings to not do what Israel did. Because Israel, this generation, did forfeit their membership in God's kingdom. His earthly kingdom. So, their children now, 40 years past, wandering in the wilderness, their children are now grown up. Moses is old. Aaron's dead. Miriam's dead. All of the generation that had come out of Egypt and denied, uh, rejected the covenant, they're dead. And so Moses now is giving his farewell to his people. That's the book of Deuteronomy. It's his last will and testament, basically. And it's a series of sermons given with a lot of emotion and a lot of pathos and a lot of, uh, you can hear his heart for his people and a lot of dire warnings as we're going to get into later because this is it. Moses is going to die as soon as he's done with this. And that's the book, Deuteronomy, that we're in. Now, if you've been coming here, you've also know that Deuteronomy, the way Moses patterned it in giving it, whether he did it himself or whether after his death someone compiled it to be this way, doesn't matter. You're free to debate that. But the book itself follows the outline of an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty. And what that means is there are forms in the ancient Near East when a conquering or a liberating king rescued a weaker people he would enter into a what we would call a treaty with that people and say, I'm the one who rescued you. You will come to me for all your needs. I will bless you. I will take care of you. If I need help in battles against my enemies, you will send troops. If you need help against battles in your enemies, I will send you support. If you have a famine, I'll help you. If I have a famine, you'll help me. That's how kings would do with these little people groups. Well, God does that exact same thing with Israel. And we know that because the whole book of Deuteronomy follows the format of these covenant treaties. An ancient suzerain, which is a term for king, an ancient king, and his vassal state or people, that's what God is doing 
with Israel. So he's giving this covenant in the form of an ancient vassal treaty. So that explains Deuteronomy. Yes, it's emotional. Yes, it has Moses' um, thoughts and his feelings and his heart is communicated, but it also is given literarily as a covenant national charter. So the rules and the laws and the things that God demands are not to be read primarily as you hearing a message from God. Because the Israelites wouldn't have read it that way. They would have read this as us receiving our constitution as a people from God. So there are legal documents are different than pastoral documents. And the law sometimes has to be stark by nature of being the law. And so when we come to things in Deuteronomy that seem harsh, we have to remember we're reading the law. You go to the courthouse uptown and pull out some law books and you're not going to get warm, fuzzy feelings from reading the laws. They're going to seem harsh. They're going to seem cold. You do this, here's the penalty. You do this, here's the penalty. And then it's up to the lawyers and the judges and the people who know the law, in theory, to enact that fairly and justly and with the right degree of mercy and compassion when needed. And that's what God gives us in His covenant documents in the Old Testament law sections, which we're moving into once again. We covered all this when we were in Leviticus and we were in later parts of Exodus. You can jump on the podcast and catch those lessons if you want to. But we've looked in chapter 12 was all about what they are to do when they enter the land and encounter these pagan worship places and these pagan implements of worship, the Asherah poles and the high places and the implements of use in the sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff. God said, you're going to go in and you are to wipe it out. You are to blot out the names of these gods from under heaven. You are to destroy their areas of worship. Remember, God is not so much concerned with driving out people as He is with driving out paganism, idolatry from the land. So the people who reject the idolatry and turn to God, there's no problem. They're welcomed in. People like Ruth, people like Rahab, People like Caleb's ancestors, they're brought in. God's wanting to purge the land of the thing that ultimately led to people killing their infants in order to appease their gods, basically. That's what God's anger is against. So in chapter 13 then, he's moving into now, this is what you're going to do if there arises from within you people who try to pull you back into that. What I've just been a chapter telling you to wipe out. What if somebody from among your own people says, hey, we should go back and do what those people were doing? That's what he's addressing now in this section. And so he says, verse 13, and he starts with the highest office. If a prophet, one who foretells by dreams or a soothsayer, somebody, somebody who legitimately hears from God or the gods, think back to Balaam in Numbers last year. If a prophet appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder which he's spoken actually takes place, and then he says, now let us go follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether it is within you to love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is a phrase that kind of gets jumbled in different translations. But it's basically, God is 
looking at this as a watershed moment. If someone comes along and they say, I'm the great prophet and I declare that it won't rain for X number of days or I declare that this sign will happen and it happens or I do this miraculous event, that's always going to get people's attention. And what God says is if that happens, listen to what they say after. If they do miraculous things but then say, now let's follow other gods, and he's referring to the Canaanite gods, let's follow these other gods, that's your mark that you know God didn't send him that you know he's not teaching the Lord's covenant. If anything, he, God, that's your moment where you're being tested right then. Will you remain faithful to the covenant or will you be led away by miraculous signs? Will you w- listen to your eyes, what your eyes see, or will you judge by what your ears hear? The covenant faithfulness has to take priority. There's a reason that the first commandment is the first commandment and not the tenth commandment. Because God's concern is with Israel being His people. If they're His people, all the other things of the commandment will come after it. Jesus said the same thing. Greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things immediately prohibit all forms of, 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 of paganism, of idolatry, of all that. And so what God's saying is it doesn't matter the signs. It doesn't matter the miracles. Will you follow what you know? Will you follow the covenant the God you know, not these other gods you have not known. And know means to experience, to have experiential knowledge in the Hebrew. We've seen this all the way back to Genesis where No described the sexual relationship between man and woman. Adam knew his wife. Knowledge denotes intimacy and experience. And so God's saying, do not be led astray from the God you know. And there are marital undertones to that because remember, God has covenantally wed himself to Israel and go follow these other gods. Do not commit spiritual adultery, no matter how miraculous the sign is that this person arises and shows you. So then, he says, verse 4, it is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commandments and obey Him. Serve Him and cling or cleave or hold fast to Him. It's the word used to um, man and woman. Man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. They'll become one flesh. That's the word used here. So the prophet or the dreamer must be put to death because he's preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He's tried to entice or seduce or thrust you away. NIV says turn you away. It's, it, the verb has all those meanings. Seduce is the best one. He's tried to seduce you away from the Lord your God, the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. God's saying, listen, this is not a minor thing. I have for 400 years have waited and made the timing perfect so that my judgment, when it's ready to fall, will fall, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, on the people who are doing things that incur my wrath. Now, if you become those people, you will experience that same judgment. God does not show favorites. If you act like Canaanites, you want to worship the gods of Canaanites, you will be treated as Canaanites. And he's saying this to Israel, the people that he has brought out. So the first warning he's given them, and he says, don't listen to this person. If it's a mighty prophet, if it's a religious soothsayer, whatever the signs and waters, I don't care how many vials of miracle water they give out and pray for people and all these you know, supposed healing, whatever, it doesn't matter. Listen to what they say. And if they're saying anything other than the covenant, Not only do you not listen to them, take them, put them to death. 
Because in this time, in this theocratic setting, this is not New Covenant. This is Old Covenant. New Covenant, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's transnational. It's, it's across all borders, every tongue, tribe, nation, language, all of it. His, his kingdom is everywhere. In this time, it was very specific. And it was a national theocracy. So rebellion against the covenant, like is being described here, was what we would call high treason. And it was rebelling against the king. And you did not rebel against the king in every single other people group in the ancient world. To rebel against the king and try to incite others to rebel against the king was an immediate death sentence. That was it. It was high treason. Well, God's saying that, yeah, I'm the high king. How much more so then if people rebel against me, is it treasonous? And in this age, in this era, the penalty was capital punishment. Now we know from our studies of Exodus a couple of years ago that nobody can be put to death unless it's on the testimony of two eyewitnesses who are willing to die for their testimony. In other words, if their testimony is found to be false, they would receive the death penalty. So that keeps this from just being like, oh yeah, Bobby said we need to go worship Baal. Let's kill Bobby. You know, it would keep it from being that. It would have to be very thoroughly documented, very thoroughly examined. Judges would be brought in, witnesses, all this stuff. But the principle, the the legal principle is you try to lure people to rebel against God, you forfeit your life. Very simple. If, verse 6, if your very own brother, your son or daughter, or the wife you love, or your closest friend, and that's, I think the Hebrew is like friend who is like your own soul, the closest people in your life, if they secretly entice you, saying, let's go and worship other gods. Again, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. So even if it's the closest person in your life, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. In Hebrew, it's you absolutely must put him to death. And your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he's tried to turn you away, to seduce you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing. This is the purpose of this Stark legislation, this, this capital crime, is not just to get retribution on the person who did it. No, no, no. It's bigger than that. It is to purge this whole concept from the people, from their minds. And so what God's saying in this section is, okay, if it's a religious prophet and they do miracles, that would be temptation to listen to them. God's saying don't. Now, the thing that would even be more tempting is if it came from within your own family or your own circle of friends. And what God's saying is, even in those cases, do not let family loyalty come before covenant loyalty. We think this is harsh because we're like, come on, Lord, this is my very own wife, my very own son, my very own mother or father. Jesus said the same thing. In the New Testament, he said, you know, if anybody's going to come after me, he's got to hate his mother or his father. Now, he didn't mean it literally because the idiom that he used meant to show um, uh, priority. So in other words, if you wanted to show the priority of something, you would say, love this, hate this. That means, idiomatically, the love you have for this must make even the love you have for this look like hate. You must love this so much 
that everything else looks like hate compared to how much you love this. That's, the, that's what that kind of phrasing means. So when, Jesus, when you read Jesus' words, you're like, oh, Jesus, hate your father and mother. He didn't literally mean hate. He's using a figure of speech. But it's this same concept. Is the, it's the concept of loyalty. That your loyalty before God comes before even the closest family ties. Now, we typically don't face much of this, but if you talk to people who convert in other places where Christianity is not welcome, like I have my friends in India, when they have converted to Christianity, they have actually faced persecution and even death threats from their own family members. And Jesus said, I don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Because of me, even a person's member of their own household will be their enemies. And what he meant was, when you choose to have allegiance to God, everything else comes second. And if somebody else doesn't like that, expect that there's going to be some animosity there. And it happens. It happens even today. There's, there's scores and scores of testimonies of people leaving uh, whatever faith they've come up in or whatever belief they've come up in or whatever practices they've come up Even in the Bible Belt, somebody was just a typical nominal Christian and then they get serious about Jesus, all of a sudden, oh, they're a fanatic. They're a freak. Let's not have anything to do with them. I mean, that happens in every culture. And what God's saying here is even your own family should come after me in terms of priority and covenant loyalty as a whole. And then the third group is going to be civic pressure. Pressure from your, your city. He says, verse 12, if you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and led the people of their own town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods. Gods you have not known. He stressed that three times. Gods you have not known. Gods you are not married to. Then, verse 14, you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proven that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. And he uses that term we've seen all throughout our study of the Torah, cherem. This town becomes cherem. This town becomes devoted to destruction. This town becomes a Canaanite town, is literally the idea that's being communicated. Because that's what God says to do to the towns that he sends them to judge, is to make it cherem completely destroy it and give everything over in the fire this is what he basically he is saying if this town has given itself over to canaanite worship it will be treated as the canaanites that you're going in the land to judge now he says if it's been said that certain wicked men have arisen among them the hebrew literally is sons of belial is the term and we don't know what the hebrew word belial means exactly at this point but by the time of the New Testament, that has become one of the names for Satan, is Belial. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, or no, chapter, yeah, 2 Corinthians 6, around verse 15, Paul will say, you know, what fellowship does, does Christ have with Belial? He uses this term. It's shorthand for Satan. So this is talking about people who are not just, oh, I believe in a different God, but people who are actively seeking to turn the community of God away from the covenant. They are actively seeking to get people to break the first commandment. That's who God's talking about. And he refers to them here as these sons of Belial, which, you know, wicked people or sons of wickedness or sons of uselessness or whatever the Hebrew actually means. It has severe spiritual connotations. However, this raises a problem, and we'll finish with this. What about if this town doesn't like us? 
from this tribe, they don't like us, or this, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, they don't like people from the tribe of Zebulun, or vice versa, whatever. What if there's a family squabble? We all know that those happen. And they go, hey, you know, I heard that this town worships Baal. All the towns come and destroy them. And then they take all their stuff, right? It would be a good way to plunder a city you don't like. It would be a good way to take the, 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 the livestock and the produce and the wealth of a people you don't like is just accuse them. Accuse them of heresy. Right? We saw this in terrible periods in the church's history during like the Inquisitions and witch trials and things like that. People would use that as a way to get revenge or to take... This rules all that out. God says, no, 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 no. You have to, one, you have to inquire thoroughly. You have to probe it completely. You have to basically have a strong trial. And then only if it's proven... And again, that would involve eyewitnesses, that would involve testimony, that would involve not just somebody saying, oh, I saw them, you know, not like these modern blasphemy cases that you read about around the world, but this is like legit. No, this town is openly worshiping. There's their high place they set up. There's their Asherah pole they set up. Here are the children that they've killed for their worship. Here's the orgies that they've had for their worship. Like, it's not a, it's not a hypothetical. What God says in that case, they become Canaanite. And that means that everything they possess, all of it, is forfeit. So this will not get you rich by crying, you know, pagan. You will not gain anything. God says, gather, verse uh, 16, gather all the plunder of the town. Everything that an army would want to take. Everything that you might be trying to get from a false accusation. Gather all into the middle of the town or the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It's to remain a ruin. So you can't even go and inhabit it. You just like the land. Oh, this is a good neighborhood. Let's take it over. Tell them they worship Baal. Tell everybody they worship Baal. So we can take... No. You can't even... It becomes uninhabitable. It becomes a wasteland. None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands so that the Lord will turn from His anger. He will show you mercy and have compassion on you and increase your numbers as He promised on oath to your forefathers. Because you obey the Lord your God, keeping all His commands that I am giving you today and doing what is right in His eyes. So God is in, in this section, what He's telling His people, remember, at a national level, not an individual level. There's no vendettas. There's no mob justice. There's none of that. This is the law of Israel as the covenant people of Israel. This is what God's telling them. And it's harsh. And it's, it is stark. And this is Moses telling his people because he's about to die and they're going to go into the land and they're going to have to live. And he's telling them, do not do this. Now, here's the question that we leave with. So what? That's how Israel did it. Big deal. Do we do what some people do and try to start enacting this? Do we try to, whether it's you know, cramming through legislation that says you've got to pray to God or say in Jesus' name at public assemblies or whatever, and you know, keeping God we trust on our dollar and all this stuff, is that what we're... Or do we try to literally enact it? And if somebody turns away from Christianity, we try to actually kill them. God forbid, no. What do we see? What we see is that this is the legislation for the covenant people of covenant Israel. Now today, we are in the New Covenant, not the Sinai Covenant. What's the New Covenant? The Covenant of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. It doesn't have the theocratic rule. It doesn't have national boundaries. It doesn't have courts and judges. So, when we see the apostles in their settings, when Paul or James or Peter or others are dealing with 
this equivalent in the new covenant, which is wanton rebellion, which is practicing immorality, which is doing all the things that are basically saying, yeah, God, I say I'm part of the covenant, but I'm living as if I'm not, and I'm doing it openly, what's the punishment? In the New Testament, you see this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, using the same language, purge the evil from, within, uh, from among you. Drive out the wicked person. Excommunication, not execution, is... And so this is the equivalent in the New Covenant. So that's why Christians don't argue for death penalty if somebody blasphemes. No, Lord, no. Because that means that the state doing the killing would be God's people. No, America's not God's people. China's not God's people. Russia, Israel, any of these places, none of it is God's people. God's people is His body, the head of which is Christ. So the punishment, the New Covenant version of execution is excommunication casting them out. And that's what Paul says to do in the 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it worked because he says, hand this man over to Satan. That's what it means for the destruction of the sinful nature. Drive him out. That's cutting them off from the people. But the goal even of that is their restoration. And we know it worked because that same man who was driven out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, now, He's repented. Bring him back in. Show, you're not, show mercy. Show grace. He's turning back to Jesus. He's repenting. He's restored. So that's the New Testament dynamic of this Old Testament. So what we read in the Old Testament, it's harsh, but it is for Old Testament times in the ancient Near East where you had a king and that king was your sovereign under penalty of death. And so we shouldn't expect that God's rule to be drastically different at that time in that surrounding area. But we live on this side of the cross. So the way we apply this principle is within ourselves, corporately as the body of Christ. How do we enact this? We do it by expelling or, or saying you're removed from fellowship until you turn back to the Lord. And so that would be the equivalent. But we are one minute over. So guys, have a great week. If you want some seconds, they're here. There's two cheesecakes left for anybody that missed dessert. Otherwise, I will not see you next week. Uh, and I will not see you the week after, but somebody else will. So y'all have a great uh, two weeks. Bye.